2: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: This is a special edition of Team Human, recorded live at the Unfinished Festival in New York City on September 23rd. Team Human supporting members got free $200 tickets to the whole two-day event. Meeting up at live events is just one of the many benefits you get and I get from your support, along with access to our bonus content, a community Discord channel, regular online salons with our guests, and free or discounted tickets to our Team Human live events. Most important, you will keep our editor fed and our ad-free show on the air. So go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others, like Blake Bjornson, Margaret Boghout, David Curry, Kyle Gerrard, and Scott Radke, who provide the energy to make this ad-free show possible. Thanks, truly. You're on Team Human where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make living people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from what may be New York City's final architectural feat, The Shed, as guests of a live event called Unfinished. Playing for Team Human today, one of the speakers from this festival, the artist, geographer, organizer, coder, and the author of Blockchain Chicken Farm, Xiaowei R. Wang. Xiaowei will be helping us contend with the fact that social trust simply may not be something that can scale. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, thanks for coming, and thanks to Unfinished for giving us the space for uh, some soul searching. We all want to do good. Well, a great many of us want to do good. We recognize that the climate is in peril, corporations are dangerously extractive wealth disparity is an all-time high our kids are self-destructively addicted to social media politics has descended into a reality tv show with paranoid features and that civilization itself has only about another 20 years before some combination of the above threats make life unrecognizable or even unsustainable the good news at least according to the majority of invitations I get to participate in conferences and with organizations, is that there's an app or technology or network or platform or most often these days a token that can fix some or all of this. The latest frame around the techno-solutionist frenzy is called Web 3.0, which has come to mean the decentralized sort of internet characterized by Tor networks, which are basically Napster and BitTorrent, where everything's hosted everywhere, and the blockchain, a new form of automated ledger. This generation of distributed technology, it is hoped, will engender and facilitate a new era of environmental stewardship, economic equality, racial justice, democratic values, and civic harmony. Even better, the tokens at the heart of these blockchains for global good will make people rich. Sure. Those who get in early will do the best, but the magic of smart contracts will somehow raise all boats, letting us all feel great about doing well by doing good. Secure in the knowledge that the returns we're seeing on all this impact investing are the deserved surplus fruits of our having dedicated our careers and portfolios to public service. But getting such efforts off the ground is the hard part. There's so many terrific people and organizations out there, each building platforms and apps and networks and blockchains too. How do we break through the noise and bring all those many decentralized organizations together into one single centralized decentralized network? And once we do, How do we prove that ours is really the one that will solve the problems? Because without enough buy-in, figuratively and literally, the token won't be worth anything and all that good won't get done. So we use the first money in, or even our own money, to build a culture, a movement, a website, a social network, a narrative lab, a think tank, a convention, an event series, a knowledge production company, a line of kids' books, a school curriculum, a K Street consultancy, or a program of webinars all of them describing the values that we want associated with the token and inspiring all sorts of great world-fixing blockchain-based solutions. If we build it, they will come. And if they come, we don't even have to build it, they will. And maybe we can give awards to the people who come up with the best stuff, awards denominated in our token, of course. This faith in new technologies to solve our problems isn't new. Sometimes it even comes true while they all end up having some unintended negative consequences of their own, technologies such as the wheel, plumbing, electricity, microscopy, and computing, they've all led to the alleviation of suffering and advancement of standards of living. When we consider problems such as poverty and global warming, however, I'm not so sure a new technology is the answer, especially not one that amounts to a better ledger. There are kids being sent into caves to dig up the rare earth metals we need to build computers that, among other things, mine our Bitcoin and host all of our pro-social online networks. Do those young slaves really need a better way to demonstrate proof of work? Does the development of a new online global network of doing well by doing good social impact investors do anything to undermine their commitment to the exponential growth targets they have pursued all along? and the collateral damage of those businesses? Does a plan to transition us from Facebook and Twitter to less abusive clones of these services really put us in a better position to engage meaningfully and purposefully? Or is it just a wellness strategy for the elite? We'll have to get Africa and India on these platforms, too, even if they already use them quite more effectively than we do here in the United States. And we'll have to figure out how to keep those people online by subsidizing free, compatible devices and access for them the way Google and Facebook and other bad guys already do. As Ethan Zuckerman likes to say, better to hack and use the compromised technology platforms people have right now than waste our time, energy, and resources building marginally better ones that aren't already on their devices. But if we don't build new platforms, then we're not doing an original new, new thing. We get no credit, no acclaim, and none of that international fame for having come up with a totally original idea, with a new name and a new ethos to solve the old problems. I mean, only new ideas and new narratives can address these truly wicked problems, right? Wrong. The answers to our collective woes are not to be found in more of the same old obsession with novelty. That's the old paradigm, my friends. No, the truly new paradigm would be to begin to recognize that we have had the real solutions to these problems all along. Yes, Dorothy, you've been wearing those ruby slippers this whole time. We don't solve for climate and poverty by reverse engineering blockchain or the web to these challenges. A better web and a more stable fluid token would be nice. Sure, so would better video games, better lawn chairs, better prestige TV. But the path to solving our combined economic and social crises is not to retrofit exponential digital technologies to social good. Social networking is primarily about getting famous. Making the planet more livable, on the other hand, means getting local. Surrendering abstract universal fame for embodied local participation. Likewise, solving the economic divide means promoting mutual aid and collective ownership, engendering trust between co-workers and cooperatives, not substituting for trust with a proof-of-stake cryptocurrency and getting rich in the process. Why create solutions at scale if operating at scale is itself the main problem? The discussion of how to employ exponential digital technologies in the service of global good is so much more convoluted and self-interested than the simpler and actionable discussion of how to stop fucking up this planet and fucking over its people and how to do so without even staking a claim on the solutions. It's time for at least 99% of us to just stop talking, get off the stage, close our screens, and help our neighbors. You're on Team Human, coming to you live from the spectacularly misnomered The Shed, at the very intersection of art, philanthropy, and real estate speculation known as Hudson Yards. We're at the Unfinished Festival, where it's my great pleasure to introduce you to our guest, the brilliant, insightful web artist, writer, creative director of Logic Magazine, author of Blockchain Chicken Farm, Civic Media Fellow at USC Annenberg, Xiaowei R. Wang.
0: Hi.
2: Wow. After that... Speech, I'm like, I have nothing to say. You said it all. <laughs> no, I went on too long
1: for sure. But let's jump into the heart of this. I mean, a lot of that was actually inspired by reading Blockchain Chicken Farm, which is, you know, so much of that is about, you know, China, which is really big, trying to deal with really local problems in big-scaled ways and all. And and what what the book maybe made me ask, which I tried to sort of answer in my own monologue here, is is can can solutions be scaled? Or is scale just the problem that we have to solve for?
2: You know, there's so much in that question, right? I think from at least what I was seeing on the ground in research throughout China, kind of the ways that we're conceptualizing solutions and scale is the problem, really. So one of the places that I visited, which was a blockchain chicken farm, that was very much centered around using blockchain as a solution. And it became very clear that this was just a one-time project. And it was really about, exactly as you were saying, putting these people on stage, getting more business deals, um, really as a marketing tactic. It's actually interesting that silicon valley is always trying to think through scale and the chinese government (laughs) is also trying to think through scale and so i think that brings up these really interesting tensions surrounding control freedom individuality yeah some of the pressing questions
1: yeah i mean it's funny because sometimes when we talk about scale we so many of the conversations talk about the freedom freedom of the individual to be on the whole network. And then I keep wondering, well, what's an individual anyway? How can you be free as an individual relating to the whole? That's the last thing I want to do. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, I always think of that Wendy Chun quote where it's like freedom is actually a matrix in which control can thrive, Right. That's just a way of like dangling like there's this abstract thing called freedom and it's all about the pursuit of it. And, you know, she as a scholar really argues that like freedom is actually thinking about the underlying conditions in which decisions become possible and who has access to sets of decisions, right?
1: Right. So we think of, particularly in America, we think of freedom as no longer being embedded and stuck in some community of other people with all their needs. And I've got obligations. It's like freedom to be what dead, basically, or Ted Kaczynski or something, you know, oh yeah, it's like, where, where are you going to go? And then, you know, one of the one of the first things that you wrote about in, in the book and, and elsewhere, too, is this term. And I hadn't heard of it. Maybe you made it up metro, metronormativity,
2: yeah, so that, like that. that term is actually um, from the queer theorist Jack Halberstam, and I love that term so much as a way to challenge so many binaries in our world, like the urban, the rural, as two completely disconnected places that have no relationship to each other. And I think seeing that relation is really crucial.
1: Right. But in seeing it through, but we, most of us, at least most of us here, you know, on on computers and going to universities and all, we're metronormative, right? We think of everything in terms of like, since the Enlightenment, really, the city is the place and the country is like,
2: Absolutely. Like their
1: red state yokel people don't know nothing.
2: Yeah. And I think it's so important to trouble that, you know, there's this amazing podcast that I was just listening to the other day called Countryside Queers. Mm. And it's beautiful because it's also like, no, like there's queer people in the countryside and also representation of that is important for queer life to like survive and for people to be comfortable, you know. For all the reasons of, you know, there is still community there throughout Appalachia. You know, how do we, like, emphasize this and not just as, like, the blanket red state Trump voters? I think additionally, too, like, exactly as you touched upon in your introduction, you know the rural is also a huge site of extraction. Like we get so much of the steel, like the coal to make steel, everything that makes our lives in cities possible. And it's not just like I think sometimes in as urbanites we do have this like weird fetish of like oh yeah those like hardworking farmers and like those coal miners. It's like one or the other. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Your book it actually reminded me of Mumford. And he's got this book, Technics and Civilization. And in there, he's talking about the sort of the country-city divide. And it goes all the way back for me. It goes back into sort of, you know, anti-Semitism and abstraction. You know, that Jews like kind of liked the cities and cosmopolitanism because a place that includes everybody included us. So it was like this safe thing. So we go to the cities, have these universal abstract values, and everyone's included. And whenever we went to the country, that's when we got in trouble because we're like, oh, look, these people are worshiping this weird thing, oh, um, you know, and we were like the, the, the abstract monotheist kind of weird thinkers, and they're all doing something real. It feels like that's sort of what's happening now in America in the sort of red-blue state divide. It's as if, you know, and again, we romanticize it and condemn it at the same time, you know, but our abstract thing, it's like, I feel like we're the more blockchain-y kind of thinking people, you know what I mean? The tokens and blockchains, abstractions and derivatives. And it's just, God, it's it's not real. It's like, we're we're the problem at this point.
2: I mean, I would say capitalism is the problem, right? right? Um, and I think we're all part of it. We're all complicit. We all, you know, how do you, I feel like in startup land, it's always like, how do you build the plane while you're flying it? I feel like dismantling capitalism, it's like, well, how do you land the plane safely while you're trying to dismantle it, right? So as a geographer, I will say, I think that the sort of uneven development, it's not just like these rural places will become cities one day. Like they're intentionally so because we live under these bigger structural forces and the economy that we do. Right. And there's definitely a lot of like culture that's intentionally created and like narratives created to really keep that economy of capitalism going.
1: Well, it was weird. You know, I saw the, um, this was Rem Koolhaas did this giant exhibit In the round means, what's that, the Guggenheim? And it was like about country, the idea of the country, and how country was, there was no such thing as the country before the city. It was just the world, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think in that exhibit, too, it's also interesting because it's always like the rural is cast as really backwards in time, which I think is a funny philosophical switch up because it's like, well, we're all in 2021, right? Um, and those mo- there were moments in that exhibit that were really like, wow, farmers know how to use computers. Crazy. Um, and it's just like, no, like we're all using, we're part of this embedded, like tech worlds, you know?
1: Right. Or, and most people don't even know that what 90, whatever percent of farmers are now working for big agra extractive firms.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And there's so much too that we actually have overlap, like, you know, the right to repair, right? Like our devices, you know, in the cities, like it might be like the right to repair our iPhones, but actually in the countryside, it's also like the right to repair this, like, extremely expensive GPS tractor that is now broken. And how do you, as a small farmer, you know, manage to sustain this kind of production level and cost?
1: Yeah, I was was actually called by one of the, uh, someone who was advising uh, some farm equipment company saying, you know, we want to bring you in to help us deal with farmer paranoia about the AI in their tractors. And I'm like, well, why do you think they're freaking paranoid about the AI in their tractors? What what are you tracking? What are you looking at?
2: So what, did, what was your advice to them?
1: Well, they're going to have to make a case that this is helping the farmer and not just disempowering the farmer. Every technological advancement I've seen, I took auto mechanics when I was in high school. You could go in and fix a car.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of those use cases of AI in farming, especially, it is definitely disempowering. Right? I don't know what you think. Well, yeah,
1: and they feel like they're going to get replaced, you know, that then once General Foods can use a robot tractor instead of you, then it's not just that you sold your family out, you're gone.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think historically in the U.S., if you look at it, like, there's so few farmers now. It's just this, like, incredible like really sad drop off and then the american farm lobby this like big you know kind of they lobby the government actually most of the people in there are like corporations right <laughs> and not actual farmers
1: no to get a seat at that table you got to be of that size and when you're of that size you're against yeah. <laughs> You're against the human farmer. Yeah. You know, but then the other thing, it's funny because we always talk about automation taking jobs away from people and we're not going to need anybody. And I get to all these conferences where they saying, so how are we going to do when there's no jobs? It's like, how are you going to do when there's no topsoil? You know, When you've got your robot industrial tractors destroying the land, we're not going to have food. You know, so if anything, we need more human beings doing lighter style agriculture.
2: Well, I mean, I suppose the techno-solutionist answer would be we just need vertical farms with a lot of sensors <laughs> right. um, and everything automated. So <laughs> really looking forward to my micro lettuce.
1: Yeah, micro lettuce and put them on top of the buildings in Oakland where yes. you are. So sure the Uber buildings already probably got a beautiful micro yeah, farm. Yeah, well,
2: we could put the micro farms in the Ubers and you could deliver them and they could be driving around the city. Right. And then when it's sunny in one place... I think we have a startup idea. We do. And then
1: transition everything to solar. Mm -hmm. And it's all good. Just don't think about where the solar panels come from. Don't think about where they go when they're done. Just it's all good right here, right? Like my iPhone, it's perfect right there, you know? (laughs) None of the servers. I don't think about, don't think about that. The other big super thing that I feel like we have in common is this Kind of alienation from time when what's happened to time you got to read this book blockchain chicken farmers like super brilliant but super accessible and i say but because you know brilliant is almost never accessible anymore it's like because they get all smart on you smart but it's like just human smart you know it's like oh this is what i've been trying to do all my life they say the easy argument is that the world is moving faster becoming more controlled because of the internet and mobile devices but the gravity of acceleration is not inevitable the way we experience time has changed. The kind of critical wonder we hold toward objects has collapsed. That to me is like that's the human condition. Just even to put those two words at critical wonder, the critical wonder we hold towards objects has collapsed.
2: Yeah. So I was thinking about really visiting, you know, my elders. So my great uncle and great aunt, and they are people who have seen everything from China go from a feudal society to the founding of the People's Republic of China, the Cultural Revolution, and everything, right? And so they always have a lot of fantastic wisdom mm-hmm. to impart. In that particular example, I was thinking about you know, just the way that throughout like, the past 10 years that I've been seeing them, like my experience of that, and even how my great uncle is now obsessed with WeChat and like, video recording everything. And I think you'd appreciate this because a lot of the villages that I went to were still on the agricultural calendar, which is a lunar-based calendar. And so there's like nine days a week. There's one day where it's just like, you can't do anything. It's a holiday and we have to set off firecrackers and like give offerings. And that's what we need to do as part of this agricultural lunar calendar. And so just being in and out of cities in China and seeing like literally that difference in time was really powerful
1: you know it's easy to romanticize it it always is but you know it's like when i you know hear people you know talk about visiting native american elders and you know that there's that there is a it's funny again we reverse it with our with our metronormativity but there's a different kind of a wisdom there that's like oh no they're they're older which means they're more experienced and smarter it's like we look at here we look at oh they're older you're not going to get this you're not they're older of course they're going to get this you know they're going to get this more but the sense of collapse, of temporal collapse and all-at-onceness is really an unhinged, untethered kind of a feeling.
2: Yeah, I think it's multiple things, right? I think it's like also it speaks to, again, power, right? Because there's those of us like who get a moment to really think about temporal collapse as we are right, right now. Um, and then there's other folks like, you know, I always bring up like my own parents or even my elders where they're just like oh like it's so weird that you like go to conferences and talk about these things but like we're actually just like on this time cycle we're like going to work we're doing the things and we really don't have a second to either think about it or to like choose you know the idea of like oh just slow down or like just like be mindful all these things they're like no we're like my mom's always like i'm at work (laughs) like don't bother me
1: there's an app she can use for that.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah, fine. <laughs> an app to help
1: correct it. <laughs> the collapse of critical of critical wonder. Yeah, and then you, you were, and it was great. You brought up Grace Lee Boggs, also, which is a, a another such a great touchstone. This the uh, the idea of returning returning to our souls. Mm-hmm. You know, which again is like them fighting words in a lot of the circles that we go in. You know, especially the scientists and the tech your Soul, your weird, superstitious, crazy person.
2: Yeah, but I do, you know what's strange? I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, but over the past year and a half, there's been this like surge in kind of like, this is also maybe West Coast influence, a surge in woo-woo-ness. Like people are like, oh, you know. I got really into like astrology or tarot cards or like you just start digging deeper. I recently found out that I guess a lot of Wall Street also uses astrology, like astrofinance. That's a thing too. And so I do feel like it's this circle that, you know, eventually meets where it's like, There is some sense of like, there is a soul and we're trying to like grasp at it either through science or through something else.
1: Yeah. Real science as opposed to like scientism. It's Mm, just the mm -hmm. billiard ball science. But it's like, so I know that you do, I mean, professionally even, or for donate, you do tarot.
2: I do read tarot.
1: I mean, I got taught tarot by my, my Hebrew school teacher of all people. Um, she got in big trouble for it, but she said tarot was based in Torah, you know, and Kabbalah and all that. So she, she thought it was legal. The parents did not. Um, (laughs) <laughs> they had a different, as you might imagine. But when you do so, you know, Taro, if you in a case you don't know, you know, there's a deck of cards and you, usually the person who's kind of being read sort of mixes the cards or interacts with them in some way. And then you lay them out in a spread. I, are you like a Celtic cross? kind of person
2: um i do the golden dawn spread and so it has like it's very i would say freudian in some ways it's like underlying conditions lessons from this cycle of life and then the way the wind is blowing and so i i think within there you know there's this funny meme amongst tarot readers where it's like tarot readings are just 94%, like, things that the person already knew but didn't want to think about. Mm. And the other percent is, like, a little bit of, you know, just, like, actually, like, going through the cards and trying to channel what the information is. But it's, it's interesting. Most people are just like, this is all stuff that I knew but I didn't really want to think about at all.
1: Right. And where do you think it comes from, the actual information?
2: I mean... I think that it's less about where it comes from, right? And I think acknowledging that, to go back to talking to elders, that there are these, you know, with tarot, it goes from zero to 22 as part of the major arcana, from the fool to the very end, the world. And it's so ancient, as you know. And there's just a set of lessons, of cycles, of things that happen in everyone's lives about, like, sort of this moment of awakening or judgment or deep introspection. And I think those are themes that will always resonate with us. It's like this, you know, thousands, hundreds of year old oral history that's put into the cards. And so I think if you're a person existing in the world, you'll always find some connection with these messages.
1: I mean, but is the order of the cards real? It, or could you just put out that any spread... And the person's going to resonate with it. The same as reading a Torah story or, you know, you could I could go through the I Ching and read any one of them and go, yeah.
2: I think that's part <laughs> of the magic, is, right. is that you know, and part of being a tarot reader is more like, you know, condensed therapy for the other person in an hour. And I've definitely told people, like, you should probably go to therapy if you <laughs> are not doing this because I'm, you know, this is like a one off session.
1: <laughs> right. But it's not like you see the cards and go, "Oh shit, this person really, they need therapy." It's not the card, it's it's the interaction.
2: Uh, there's definitely been times where I look at it and I'm like, "Oh boy.
1: and you don't tell them, but you don't see it specific. It's like, like oh, you're going to die in 12 minutes." It like, doesn't work like that.
2: No, no, <laughs> it's definitely not that. It's, uh, you know I think the art of also being a tarot reader is like how to break uh, news to people in a way that is uh, compassionate and loving like you know like right. um, you might be stuck on something. I think you're stuck, really
1: <laughs> Right, right or the next realm will be welcoming <laughs> if soon <laughs> no <laughs> it's not like that you know. but i just thought it was it was interesting because of your you you do technology and science and geography and history but then you also and i think a lot of us do have this other i mean for a lot of us it's closeted almost our our spiritual
2: i mean but i think like So, like, for example, you know, if you think about, like, data science and just kind of this idea of predictability or, like, measurement errors, things like that, there's always a kind of grasping at certainty, right? Right some kind of certainty that can give us like something to stand on or some kind of stability. I think what's interesting with tarot too, it's like people come and they're like, I'm trying to grasp that certainty. But then my answer is like, well, I can see that you're stuck, but there's really no certainty. Like you have a, p- a lot of power to change how things will go, right? And it's really about recognizing, you know, holding up this mirror that are the cards to like recognize like, well, where can you move from? Where do you have power in your life, right?
1: Right. And that, I mean, for me, always comes back to the same to the issue of scale, you know, where you have power in your life. I mean, sure, if you're in the government, if you're AOC or something, then go fight against corporations and whatever. But if you're just living in your town, doing your thing, what is your what is your 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 access point? You say in the book, you know, that there's this sort of scaled democracy and tech progressivism versus the revealed state of interbeing. Mm -hmm. Which to me, what that meant is like, oh, I'm going to be a big global activist and make the blockchain that takes down, you know, the UN and then just, oh, my neighbor needs me this, you know.
2: Exactly. I mean, I always, uh, you know, think of my friend Dorothy Santos, who always says, like, what can you do from where you are with what you've got? Right. And I think, you know, a lot of times these narratives of scale, they they do get in the way and they like. You know, when people think like, how can I do good? How can I change the world? People do have a sense. They have ideas. And then they're like, no, I shouldn't do it because it's not scalable. It's not going to make a big impact. And I think it's about doing away with that narrative of scale and just saying, you know, exactly as you just said, like being like, I can talk to my neighbor. I can Through this practice of relationship, start to really affect like change. Think about harm. Think about accountability. All these important things um, in our world.
1: And it's so much easier not to have all those kind of externalities that you don't know about. You know, it's like people want to do good by you know doing well, whatever, all this stuff, and they're doing these giant things. And it's like, yeah, but then there those there's that all that energy, and there's all those kids going into mines, and there's all that you know toxic waste. It's like just you know helping this woman raise her kid or teaching someone who doesn't know how to read to read or digging someone out of the the flooded basement
2: yeah i mean i think that's where that sense of agency is cultivated from right and i think like when we think of like the big scale change what happens is like we start saying like we or like doing thing, good things for, like, the people or the world, and then that's, like, not granular enough to me to really think through these relations of power. I do think, you know, those kind acts of towards our neighbors, we also need, like, structural change to go along with it, right? right? For sure.
1: But I'm, I'm wondering, all those kind acts we do for our neighbors— can trickle up into structural change or they certainly disempower those who depend on us not doing stuff for our neighbors you know so then all those you know the walmarts of the world that are depending on alienation not just walmart but it's a good stand in you know, they get disempowered if we're sharing things.
2: Exactly. I think that's exactly right on. There's this amazing activist who came and spoke at Logic School, which I helped organize, Khadijah Abdul rahman Her work is like with children and like, you know, thinking through uh, child social services and the ways that that actually can be a form of social control mm. um, rather than actually helping children. One of the things that she's done is like provide like diapers, formula, things like that to parents in the community. And it's like if we rely on each other to community, like collectively community take care, like then it's less about like taking kids out of their homes and, you know, doing whatever social control, basically. I mean,
1: but in America, of course, you know, we're each in our separate little house and then there's privacy and oh, no, you know, when I you go to uh, I still remember I went in the 80s, I went to Rome. And at night, they're just all out in the street. There's like grandmas sitting there and teenagers making out and little kids playing and guys like rolling dice and gambling. And it's like one thing. But there's so much accountability in that everybody's watching each other and seeing it all. And you know if that kid's being screwed up, the old lady's like, hey, you, you know. And that sense that it's okay to go and yell at your neighbor's kid,
2: yeah,, you know? yeah, I mean relation exactly, that's the opposite of like surveillance, right,
1: right, it's but it's still watching, you're still seeing,
2: yeah, it's the opposite of like that top down surveillance,
1: yeah, 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 peer to peer surveillance
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I prefer that yeah it's honestly. Not even surveil- it's, but
1: it is, and it's someone who's got your best interests at heart, they're not surveilling you to control your behavior, yeah, you know they're there to. Yeah, well, yeah, to control your behavior. But it's a different <laughs> it's a different thing. I mean, this is like these are like freaking zen here. The work of awareness and care instead of the tools of efficiency and scale is really it right there. And then how do we engender it is my question. I guess you're trying to engender it primarily through art and artistic interventions, trying to engender this this yeah. sense of work and care.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say that my Artistic work, it's very much centered around workshops and like participatory public art. And then also, I help steward uh, Logic School, um, which is a 12 week, basically social justice activism school for tech workers. We meet online, and it's really kind of a kitchen table for tech workers to come after work and just be with each other and practice and, like, I want to say it's like a sandbox for building community, like all the things around how do we hold harm, how do we have healthy conflict, and from there they can take that in either if they want to reform their workplace or what their workplace is doing or start building new technology that's really, like, taking tech into a different direction.
1: At Logic, though, is it like... Some engineer who spent the day coding or how to teach a drone to blow up a wedding. And then, (laughs) you know what I mean? And he's coming in like, oh, fuck. I just killed all these people today. I'm feeling really bad. What can I do? Is it like that?
2: Um, so I will say uh, that I feel like, you know, the, uh, this is the joy of turning 35 is to just set the boundary and say, like, well, some people uh, need things that logic school can't provide, <laughs> such as maybe a stronger moral compass. So, you know, we do an admissions process. So we do like on the application. I think the central question is asking, who is your community and who do you build for? Mm. Right. Um, and that can be inside or outside of work. And so we've had these amazing projects actually. So it's, we say tech worker very broadly. This also includes uh, gig workers, um, people. Um, we had one gig worker, Willie Solis, who, um, is like working with the Gig Workers Collective to really fight for gig workers' rights. And then really sparking conversation between someone like Willie to someone who is an individual contributor at like Twitter or Medium, right? Right. Um, And what what comes out of that is really, really magical. Because I
1: always used to say, I mean, back in the 90s, I would always argue that the hackers, the developers, the programmers, that they could be the ones in charge because you can't build anything without them. But now there's so many of them that they just fire, you know what I mean? They fire you if you try to say, hey, maybe we, you know, shouldn't be watching the driver. Maybe we shouldn't be droning the children. You're like, oh, all right, we'll get someone else. Or finally, we've got a robot in to-.
2: Yeah. And that, I think, ultimately comes down to like a personal choice again, right? Of like, well, you know. can you risk being fired if you're trying to reform your company? And acknowledging that not everyone is in a position to do that, right? They have to pay the bills. With Logic School, We respect that. We acknowledge that. And just try to make space for people to really dream. There was one project, I think, in particular that really exemplifies it. Um, This project called Looking Glass by Adrian Jones. And he's trying to really challenge the narrative of, you know, everything that's happening in East Liberty, Pittsburgh, which is a site of gentrification. There's, like, Google coming in, building their offices. And he's building this, like, AR platform to celebrate the history of those black neighborhoods um, throughout Pittsburgh. And it's really beautiful because it's all about this reclaiming, about taking up space. You know, there's that. And then there's also people who are part of logic school who are trying to process their time as a trust and safety engineer at a large social media company. And I think that's important too, right? Like just to have that time for reflection because it's not something that's really given to you as a tech worker. It's always like you can join this meetup to become better at JavaScript or like be a better worker. It's never like here's this two hours where you can slow down and be with people who want to bear witness to your feelings and thoughts.
1: Right, which is really a lot of it. That's a whole lot of it. I mean, you know, I teach I teach at, at Queens College, and a lot of times I'll teach them about, you know, how social media works and all. And like halfway through the semester, a few of them will start sending me emails saying, you know, I was going to graduate in six months and start working as a social media marketing manager at a company, and now I'm, how am I going to do that now after what you've done to me, you know? But it wasn't me. They just give them a few readings, you know, show them a couple of documentaries, and they realize, oh my, this is really... This is bad for people. and the thing I'll tell them I, I try to tell them is look you can still be well, you could be a social media marketing manager for a nonprofit or something good or a good cause. or even if you do that job now you know the weapons and you can try to mitigate what you're what you're doing. I mean, is that sort of the, the approach is just step at a time?
2: Exactly. I mean just trying like as much as we can you know from where we're from, right? I think also part of that, too, is that we do need more spaces, um, more jobs, more fellowships, whatever, where we can just like literally give someone who's creative and like doing amazing things, like give them a pot of money to just do those things. Right. Because I think a lot of people who also, you know, the people who came to logic school, a lot of folks, they were doing other stuff and went to a coding boot camp and became a software engineer. And it's like, yeah, like if you look at a lot of other professions, they're pretty precarious. And software engineers like the one thing where you're like, oh, I can actually pay off my student loans, <laughs> right? So how to balance all of those things.
1: Right. No, basically, those are the two jobs today. Is software developer or contractor, you know, for people's homes. It's like, there's <laughs> are in demand no matter what's going on. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be in demand 15, 20 years from now. Do you think forward because you're still young.
2: I appreciate that. <laughs> I
1: and mean, I think forward and I think, well, you know, I'm going to be old, probably, hopefully, by the time that shit really hits the fan. But, oh, no.
2: So you're like, oh, I'll be, I'll be done. Once. Yeah, but i got a
1: kid, so that kind of screwed that up. You know, it was, I was just going to have front row seats on the fall of Rome, right? And now I'm like, oh, shoot. Now I'm, I'm embedded in that future. You know, because you see, you know, who was it? It, You know, Club of Rome had all their predictions about climate change and all from the 70s. And they all came true and be worse. And we're looking at the Celsius, whatever, go up and the Arctic, this go down. And
2: Yeah, but I don't know. The Club of Rome stuff. So I have to say the Club of Rome stuff really irritates me. Can I confess Please, that? Please, yeah. Um,
1: I want to be irritated by it rather <laughs> than frightened by it.
2: I think, I think it was part of, I'm also going to get really nerdy for a second, so please stop me. No, if nerdy this is, is like, good. I think that it was written at a time in which like, you know, 60s, 70s, part of that era in which, honestly, this kind of like cri- ecological crisis was synonymous with like, you know, honestly being, trying to think of a good way to phrase it, um, Where it was like, oh, there's going to be like overpopulation or like, you know, all these, I find them very problematic words because it's like overpopulation of who. And it's always like. Population
1: bomb. Right. Yeah. Little African children in the Africa wanting your food. Yeah.
2: Like China, (laughs) Africa, you know, Asia, all these places. But what's never said is that the people who are using the most ecological resources are like rich people in the global north. Right, and like if we're to actually address all these issues about climate change, it's that we should be thinking about, not like this idea of overpopulation right. or this kind of like scarcity crisis and all these things. So I find, yeah, that kind of era <laughs> of prediction uh, sometimes problematic.
1: But when you look at, but when you do look at the, the inability to do a climate accord. And the the in some sense, even the futility of transitioning to everything to solar and Teslas and all that, because you're digging up so much crap to do it. I mean, do you work on climate or looking at that and thinking about I mean you're not you don't you don't have catastrophic fears.
2: <laughs> I
1: mean Maybe the cards haven't revealed that
2: yet. <laughs> I mean, I do have a lot of fears. <laughs> okay. Oh, um, yeah, as any healthy person. Um but I do think that these questions of climate, you know, they're all interrelated, right? I think there's a way that we really have invented nature as a concept, right? Like even I see this across climate discourse where it's like nature is this like pure thing and like humans, we've like destroyed it. And then it's always like, well, which humans? Like who? And like what kind of purity are we trying to return to? And so... I think then when you look at, you know, the attempt to actually arrive at some kind of actionable climate accord, actual change, the thing that's really standing in the way ultimately are these large corporations and that's tied to the economic system we live under. And that's like, well, there's so many entry points into trying to change this, right? Not to sound like a huge socialist, but also... Yeah,
1: or you could be you could be an anti-capitalist without being a socialist. Exactly. Too. You know, exactly. A, whatever, anarcho-anarcho <laughs> syndicalist. <laughs> I got accused of it once, and then I read it on Wikipedia and was like, oh, oh what, is, what does it's that good. mean? It's good. I know. I was at this conference in Germany, and some economist, Dr. Professor, you know how they do it, got up and go, you, my friend, you sound like an anarcho-syndicalist. And I was like, I don't know. Can you hum a few bars, and I'll let you know? You know but I looked it up that night in the room on Wikipedia, and um, it's like cottage, the, it's a, a world of cottage industries networked together.
2: That's of
1: little kind of kibbutzes and stuff, but they can trade with each other. So you have a scaled I- individual things. And then the things you have to do at scale, you do. But there's not that many that you really have to do at scale.
2: Yeah. Now my mind is like, what's the like to do list to get to there? <laughs> right. Yeah, that was probably <laughs>
1: the bad thing was the anarcho-crypto. I those guys, they got violent at some point. So like they, they're shunned. But it's like, so Stalin was violent too, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that every... You know, everything Mark said was wrong either, right?
2: Yeah. There's no there's no purity politics in the world. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's like you don't have to don't have to throw out the baby, don't throw out the
1: baby with the bathwater. It's funny, in your in your in your bio, like one of the first things you say is that you're here to try to help us deal with tech tech anxiety.
2: <laughs> I mean, so when I read tarot, I actually get a lot of requests from people working in tech. And I think that it's been really fascinating to talk to folks who work in tech and just kind of try to unpack some of the concepts, right? And that's really like, you know, the question of like, well, what is the meaning of my life? What am I supposed to do? Like all my friends have this stuff on Instagram and like, I feel like anything that I do is not worth it. Like my my friend on Instagram has a hobby and they make perfect furniture and that's their hobby. And so it is this like, you know, sense of like, how do we work through this anxiety?
1: I know from a, from a uh, different perspective, I think. Than most. I mean, I really like the way that you know that queer theory is almost as a as an umbrella for you know kind of depolarizing, de-, de denaturalizing so many of our underlying assumptions about things. You know, for me, it was always capitalism was. It's like this is money. No, that's not money. This is what they made into money. The, you know, that's not money. It's, or, or you know, people say, well, you know, I got to get a job. Said, so, well, when were jobs invented? And then you'd go do the history, you know, late Middle Ages, they were they made up jobs. You used to just do stuff. Yep, You just worked.
2: Yep. Yep. And even the idea that of an engineer as being made up, too. Right. Like Veblen being like, well, you know, we have to, like, separate out the arts and crafts from, like, the people making, you know, technology. So. We're gonna- right.
1: This is all applied engineered and you know productive and scalable. This is all touchy feely weird. You know? Exactly. That. And then do I you push these people far enough and then you find out everybody working at Google's I like, got a, a you know account on Aleister Crowley fanbase.com or something. You know what I mean?
2: Whoa, whoa, you're deep into tarot. That's but amazing. You, <laughs> but you know what I mean? They
1: they they my daughter on Instagram started talking about and he was a, about manifesting. They're talking on, 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 on Instagram, on uh, uh, TikTok. I'm manifesting this, I'm manifesting... Or they get called upon to manifest things for others. Oh, could you manifest something for me?
2: Yes, yes, or occult uh, TikTok, where it goes, like, if you um, get the video, it's like, if you are getting this video, it was meant for you because the algorithm sent it to you. I mean... Uh, it's as,
1: it's, algorithms is as magical as anything else. I
2: mean, basically...
1: Yeah, I just don't, I've never looked at algorithms It's like fairies. I look at them more as demons, you know? <laughs> we create, it's like casting a demon spell. Okay, well, I want you to go out there and find out what the person wants and then make them think you're giving it to them and then pull them into something really extreme and make them unhappy. Go! You know? We,
2: <laughs> I mean, that's real. I don't know. You probably know about this, like the Queen Elizabeth's court magician. john d D. yeah yeah i mean that's like a prime example of the line between casting bad spells and bad magic being basically the realm of like algorithms
1: right and we'll come up with a nice logo don't Mm -hmm. call it a sigil it's a logo you know (laughs) Mm.
2: yeah i mean there's uh, you've probably seen his like uh, obsidian scrying mirror and it's crazy because it's like just this reflective black screen a black mirror if you will mm-hmm. and that's like where he came up with you know british empire i mean he was a mathematician too so it wasn't just like you know oh he's like just some magician he's like really combining the two i think
1: yeah and they developed a really you know well the modern notion of empire through uh you know magic mimetics and well gunships <laughs> you know <laughs> they definitely helped you know
2: yeah i'm convincing the, the head of an empire that that was a worthy cause too yeah <laughs> yeah
1: where do you find your most hope
2: i think i find a lot of hope everywhere i think that gen z i just love that they're like they're so over everything <laughs> 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 they're like over capitalism they're just like money isn't real but also like you should pay me Um, I appreciate that attitude. I appreciate just like one person literally said, like, I am so over gender. And this was like someone who's like 19. And I'm just like, I love this. You know, (laughs) like when I was an undergrad, like many, many years ago, it was just so different. So I think that that just gives me hope that like the default conversation is changing.
1: Right. Along with that is an ability to embrace kind of, you know, the, the nuance and paradox and ambiguity. It's not, you know, when I grew up, ambiguity was some problem and how to be stamped out. Wait a minute. Are you here or here? This or that? What is what is your problem? And it's like, no, it's sort of soft and squishy and weird. That's why I always talk about, you know, you know, David Lynch and the unresolved stuff. And that's where. That's where the weird, wonderful part of life is.
2: Exactly. I think the ability to like sit with that, um, as much as we like say like, oh, Gen Z, they're always on their phones. I think that it's actually just like this different form of like being with each other. And I do think that like being able to sit with the ambiguity has increased so much. I don't know. Where do you find hope?
1: In this. I mean, (laughs) that's why I do Team Human, you know, engaging with someone else and then and then vampirically sucking on their hope. Um, <laughs> no, um, no, but for me, I, I, my hope is in that, is when I find people who are um, able to I- embrace paradox and experience it as wonder rather than as a problem. You know, is that, that I mean, you know, from all the, the, your work in China too, the, the yin-yang is part of, Getting the oh, it's you know, and the elders that you went with—they went through the frigging cultural revolution. They're like, oh, kids will be kids, you know, (laughs) right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's like the one person who was revolutionary one day is now like an anti-revolutionary the next. It's just like so much of that, yeah, can be flipped,
1: right? And then I start to experience that as the fuel, you know, as the fuel for wonder, as the fuel for engagement, for even that what you know what you had said, you know, the critical wonder you know, is the place I live. And some people say, oh, you're, you know, and that's the thing. The critique I always get is that I'm too critical or too much wonder, you know, and it's about the same thing. And it's like, no, critical wonder, that's, you know, I mean, that's the paradox that I think is the most fun to play with.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think in just really being with something, like the ambiguity, the emotion, the, you know, what you see as like, you know, attention rather than immediately, as you're saying, like jump to trying to solve that problem.
1: Right, I mean, have you had any exposure to this thing? I mean, we have got like three minutes, I thought I'd ask. I can't figure it out, I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious. I'm not, I don't know if I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, I'm glad to be welcomed here and to have the opportunity to do this and make a tape and, and, and see the shed and this giant thing and, and all, but, but I mean, I just hear all the words and that's why I talked about Ethan Zuckerman. I mean, I don't know, if, the, if this, you know, Project Liberty, the idea that we need another social network that does it right, or we need another web that does it right, to kind of somehow reboot the net into the better net. You know, the new decentralized Tor blockchain social good thing where we all get tokens for each other's attention. I mean, I feel like I've heard this song before. You know, from Diaspora forward, You know, Diaspora was these kids who wanted to do a new Facebook and then they ended up getting venture capital and then it went away because that's what venture capital does, you know, that I feel like there's like so many, so many great efforts out there that if I had a zillion, billion, trillion dollars, you know, I'd want to just like try to seed, give the people what they need rather than do a whole other one.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's just so much hubris behind it, right? And there's, like, an economy behind it. It's, like, all the money that flows in to, like, shape what you were saying before, like, a culture surrounding it, a conference surrounding it, all these things. At the end of the day, I think, like, there's a way that venture capital really is just about, like, the everlasting flow of money, right? Like, it was this weird thing where... About a month ago, I was at a conference and I was talking to a venture capitalist and then two of them came up to me and they were like, you should start a company. And I was like, no. And they're like, you don't have to do anything. We'll just give you a business plan. That's how venture capital works. And I was like, well, I thank you for telling me this. They were like, but you would be the founder and then you would have to like do these things and like go to conferences, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is a terrible idea. I'm an empty vessel for capital to flow through. (laughs) And they're like, but you could hire all your friends. And I was like, "Uh, okay. They were like, well, what are your friends doing? They can't be doing anything that exciting. And I was like, well, they're surviving and they're building community and they're doing beautiful things. And there's this funny moment where they're just like, what? Like, your friends are just happy surviving and, like, being in community with each other? Like, they could be, like, making six-figure salaries and doing all these things. And I was just like, this is we're different languages and <laughs> end of conversation
1: yeah yeah it is funny because i do know i mean i i was talking to some venture capitalist types and they were they were talking similarly about like people in portland and they were making fun of them saying oh and those where well, they're gonna make their craft beers and their etsy and they're this and they're that and i'm like you know when you guys retire, you VC people, what do you guys do? You do your craft beer and your Etsy and your furniture making. They're doing your retirement now, you know. So who's the fool, right? Uh, mm.
2: Yeah, that's it. They just a different vocabulary, and I'm not really sure I want their vocabulary.
1: Well, thankfully, you you've got your own vocabulary that you're teaching us. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful. Here's your, 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 this is the new thing on Team Human. As a Team Human, your free complimentary copy of Team Human. Thank you. For you you already know everything Wait, in there. Wait, did you sign Plus, it? No, I should, I will. Oh. I can do that. Then you can, if I don't put your name on it when I sign it, it's worth more on eBay. You know personalized. don't get it personalized if you want to sell it. I love it when I'm doing a book signing, what's your name? Oh no, don't, 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 don't put my name on it. It's like, a, fuck you, buddy, you know? Okay. Thank you, Xiaowei. Thank you so much. For being on Team Human. Thank you all. Thank you to Unfinished, our hosts, for letting us jab you a little bit. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you. Team Human is produced by Joshua and edited by Luke Robert Mason, and engineered by this wonderful crew of Unfinished. Thank you very much. Namaste. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. That was so much fun. Thank you. (laughs)